All right. I don't know who coined the phrase, but it's been circulated. You maybe have heard it. Uh, what are the last seven words of the church? The seven last words of the church are, we've, I know it's a, uh, two words in one. We've, we've never done it that way before. We've never done it that way before. Seven last words of the church. People laugh, and that's supposed to get a little bit of a snicker, but it's actually, you think about it, it's a deadly phrase because it's kind of one of those things that's funny because it's true. Uh, and so, uh, let's think about this. Seven last words of the church. When, when any church, even a Southern Baptist church says, we've never done it that way before, that is often coming soon to the odor of death rather than the preserver of life. Now, Listen, there, there is no change in the life of the Christian church that's greater than what we just experienced in Acts chapter 10, right? Uh, Acts chapter 10, the change that happens there is remarkable. Not only uh, you think about the change of attitude uh, for the Jews, right? You don't take what God has made, whether it be animal or man, and you don't call what God has made unclean. You don't write people off because of their national background, their customs, their languages, not to mention uh, the ceremonial laws of the various foods. Those are all done away with. So there's a change in attitude, but there's also a change uh, in conduct. Uh, Peter goes, remember, to the house of a Gentile in Caesarea. And what does he do? He preaches to them. He baptizes them. And then remember, remember when we left off the last verse of chapter 10? What did Peter do? He stayed with him. He says it lodges with him. That had never happened before. With all good Jews would have said in that moment, I'm sorry I can't because unclean, unclean, unclean. Well now when we come to Acts chapter 11, word has gotten back to Jerusalem of this event. And word gets back to Peter. Peter, you've got some explaining to do, right? As Ricky would say. The gospel is now going to the Gentiles. And, and, and listen, when we talk about this, this is certainly, as we've said, what we would call a redemptive, historical, unique event at, at, at this Acts chapter 10, right? No doubt. And what I mean by that is this happened once. This is a Gentile Pentecost, which means when the gospel now goes to nations who have never heard the gospel, uh, they don't have a repetition of this with angelic visions on both sides and the spirit falling and speaking in tongues. This is an extension of the once for all work of Pentecost. There is nothing else like it in the book of Acts and nothing else like it, in fact, in church history. But in another sense, I think there are some real lessons that we can learn here about change in church life that can stem from this passage. There are lessons that we can learn regarding helping a church accept something new, as our title states from this text. So here's my outline. Verses uh, 1 through 18 is what we're covering. There are three parts. 1 verses 1 through 3, we have a characteristic resistance. A characteristic resistance. It has the characteristics that often come when you change anything at any time, in any situation, albeit here it is a very dramatic and different situation, a unique situation. So that's what we have first, a characteristic resistance. Then in verses 4 through 17, I'm taking my language basically from verse 4 of Acts chapter 11 where it says, Peter began speaking and proceeded to explain to them 
in orderly sequence. And we have secondly, a careful response. A careful response. And then in verse 18, they quieted down, it says. They glorified God and they gave their own response of what we're going to call compliant rejoicing. All of these are designed to help the church learn how to accept something new. Alright, so we'll go back over that, don't worry. Uh, but let's start verses 1 through 3, a characteristic resistance. And as always, we're just going to walk text by text here and mosey all our way down to verse 18. Here's what the Bible says in verse 1 of chapter 11. Now, the apostles and the brethren who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had, this phrase is important, received the word of God. So remember, they've heard that not, not the Samaritans, remember, not the half-breeds, the, the Gentiles, the full, as they would call them, ones we treat like dogs, they've received the word of God. We don't know how that uh, came about, a uh, word about 1,500, uh, about, uh, well, how that word filtered 100 miles down to Jerusalem. Maybe they sent a carrier pigeon. I think those things worked back then. Uh, they heard that the Gentiles had, note the language, received the word of God. And that's significant because receiving the word of God and receiving the spirit of God are always used interchangeably and synonymously in the text. Uh, you can hear the word of God and not receive the word of God, right? Uh, you can hear the word of God and not receive the spirit. But if you're truly receiving the word of God, guess what you also receive? The Spirit of God, right? Because that's what the Word does. The Word uh, brings the Spirit. The Spirit takes those words and He makes us live through them. So they received the Word of God and they received the Spirit too. Verse 2. And when Peter came up to Jerusalem, those who were circumcised, another phrase to take note of here, took issue with him. The word took issue, anybody have anything different in their version? Contended, yep. Contended's one I've got as well. Uh, that, that word issue, uh, contended, it's also the same word that's used in Acts chapter 10 uh, verse 20 where it says there, but get up, go downstairs and accompany them without misgivings. You see that word there? Uh, it's a synonym also for the word that's used in Acts 10 verse 29 where it says, that is why I came without even raising any objection when I was sent for. It's not the same word, but the same concept. And, and it's also used here in our chapter in verse 12, chapter 11, verse 12, where it says, uh, Peter's recounting the story again. He says, the spirit told me to go to them without misgivings. The word actually means to discriminate. That's what the word means. That's the idea. So Peter is told here, you go without objecting, without discriminating. But notice, this is what's happening in Jerusalem. Those without circumcision took issue, discriminating with him. They are objecting, upset. They're bothered by this. They are discriminating. Not against Gentiles, but against what has happened here. So here's a situation in which Peter has been prepared to deal with this. He received a vision, remember, actually three times. He's been prepared to deal with this. Those in Jerusalem have not been prepared. They, they said, you went to uncircumcised men. You were in their homes, bro. You, you lodged with them. You ate with them. You spoke with them particularly. Have you lost your mind? 
This is a characteristic resistance. And I I wanted to really label this and phrase this as an understandable resistance, but I didn't want to use that word understandable because it's not really understandable because the way they understood the Gentiles was, in fact, unbiblical. But But it was characteristic when something different comes. And here's what they did. They majored on the minor. They heard, what did, what did they hear? That the Gentiles did what? They received the word of God. They should have said, oh, yes, the promise of God and Holy Scripture by which the word would go out to all the Gentiles is being fulfilled in Christ. As Abraham said, all the nations, as God said to Abraham, all the nations through you will be blessed. This is what's supposed to be happening. They should be rejoicing. It's being fulfilled before the very eyes and ears, but no. They're majoring on the minor. And look at verse 3. Saying, you went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. Peter, you ate with these unclean people? That is characteristic of a resistance to change. That's always what happens, by the way, when people can't stand change. Is Invariably, what they do is they major on the minor. The tune to music is different. I don't like that. That song's different. I don't like that. Their clothes are different. I don't like them. Here, it is indeed understandable because Jews didn't do that. Now, listen, some of those things matter in context. They do. But we have to decide what the minor is and what the major is. Here, it's understandable that Jews didn't eat with Gentiles. We know that. This wasn't custom. This wasn't the condition From the time these circumcised ones had been little, they'd been told, you do not deal with a Gentile. Gentiles are unclean. You treat them less than dogs. If you become a midwife and there's a Gentile woman that's giving birth, you do not help her at all. You refuse because they're unclean. In fact, if if you're drinking your milk, make sure you get your milk where, where you know where you're getting your milk from, right? Because if there's a Gentile that milks the udder, do not drink that milk because it's unclean, which I will just hold my tongue there. Um, that's the idea. You, so you can understand at times why they thought this way. So this response is understandable, but, but the point about this response is that's wrong. You can understand why people in certain ways, but it doesn't make it any less wrong. And, and let's be frank, the number one thing I've ever heard in Nassau County about interacting with different cultures is, well, you know, that's just how I've been raised. As if the fact that you've been raised that way absolves you of any wrongdoing whatsoever. Friends, it doesn't matter how you've been raised. I understand it. I understand the comfort level. The question is, is it right? Is it biblical? Or is it wrong and unbiblical? Do not consider anything God has made unclean. It's clear. Now, the way I had to wrestle with this, I, was, I remember I was in a church in Jamaica with Brother Justin. First time we ever met, actually. We went uh, to Jamaica together on a mission trip. And I had to wrestle with this question. I was in a Baptist church here in Jamaica. And uh, we walked in a worship service. And I was raised here at uh, First Baptist Church of Greg Gables, used to our worship style. And we had some ladies down front using tambourines and singing worship songs. And we had no words on the screen. And I was just, what's, 
what's happening here? How do, how do people worship in this way? This is a travesty, what's going on here. I'm not used to that as part of the culture of those people. I had to say that though this is different than what we do, can I honestly say that this style of worship is unbiblical? My answer was no. In that context, I had to ask the question, am I majoring on a minor here? Is my response just based on my background? So here what we have is a characteristic resistance that came. We move on. We have any questions about that? Let's move on to the careful response. Verse 4. Here we have now no longer a characteristic resistance, but a careful response that Peter gave. These, these people... Who, by the way, these Jews who had not received an angelic visitation telling them what God has made clean, don't consider common or, or unclean, let alone seen it three times. They haven't been to see what happened at Cornelius' house in Caesarea. They are completely in the dark about these things. So Peter does a great job of giving them a very careful, very thought out response. In verse 4 it says this, But Peter began speaking and proceeded to explain to them in orderly sequence, saying... And I noticed this. This is the same language that the author of this book in the Gospel of Luke, whose name was Luke, uses in Luke chapter 1 verse 3 when he says that Theophilus, who was possibly, probably a Gentile disciple, he says in verse 3, It seemed fitting for me as well, having investigated everything carefully from the beginning, to write it out for you in consecutive order, most excellent Theophilus. Luke is literally catechizing, setting in order for Theophilus the things of Christ. Interestingly, Peter uses that exact same word as he says, hold on, let's back up, let's, let's start at the very beginning and I'll tell you exactly what happened. So he goes on, verse 5. I was in the city of Joppa praying and in a trance I saw a vision, an object coming down like a great sheet lowered by four corners from the sky and it came right down to me. Remember, he was in the city of Joppa, and who was he staying with? Anybody remember? Simon the Tanner. And what's a tanner? Animal skins. And how did, how did Jewish culture view the tanner? Uh, that's, a, that's a problem for us, man. Like, I get that's your job and everything, but you handle a lot of unclean animals, so you're outside the fringe. You're still technically part of us, but you're not really part of us. You're on the fringe. So, so Peter's probably wrestling with why do I have to stay here? What's happening here? And then he begins to pray. Brothers and sisters, we think about this to you. Praying is to what water is to a potter's clay. It, it really is. I, I guarantee you, I know this for a fact, if you've become hard, stubborn, and willful in your Christian life, I guarantee you, most likely, it's because you've not humbled yourself before God in prayer. As soon as you, in a spastic way, arch up your back, your veins in your neck stick out, your blood pressure goes up, there's something that you just can't accept, even though it may not be wrong, I'm going to ask you if you have a humble frame to God in prayer. So, so Peter is in this humble frame. He ought to be, at least, of, of God in prayer. Notice how his careful response began. Number one, he says he's been given a divine revelation. That's the first part of this careful response. The equivalent of it by way of a vision. We've read this story, I think, for three straight weeks now. Peter keeps recounting this story. Luke keeps recounting this story because it's significance. But let's go ahead and do it again. Verse 6 of chapter 11. 
And when I fixed my gaze on it and was observing it, I saw the four-footed animals of the earth and the wild beasts and the crawling creatures and the birds of the air. Remember, some clean, some unclean, all mixing together. And I also heard a voice saying to me, get up, Peter, kill and eat. Then we see Peter's spastic response. He has one of his own, verse 8. But I said, by no means, Lord, for nothing unholy or unclean has ever entered my mouth. Peter says to the, unso- to the circumcised right now, guys, I was right there with you. I said the exact same response to God that you're saying to me. I can identify with you. I did the same thing you did. And then look at verse 9. But a voice came from heaven, answered a second time. What God has cleansed, no longer consider unholy. This happened three times. And then everything was drawn back up into the sky. This is the divine revelation that's given to him. Christ is speaking and saying, Peter, as soon as that word unclean comes out of your mouth, unclean because of shrimp, unclean because of oysters, unclean because of the Greeks, unclean because of the Romans, remember, I declared them not to be common, leprous, or unclean. I made them. You don't get to call them unclean. Let's think about this. We're going from an Israelite state in which holiness is a list of do's and don'ts, a list of physical things from which you are to separate yourself to an age in which Christ did not come to condemn the world but to save it. So, so you go out into the world seeing each human being as a potential object of grace. Divine revelation that, that he gives to people in Judea. Now notice, not only a divine revelation, then a divine providence. It lines up so beautifully here. Look at verse 11 of chapter 11. Divine providence. And behold, at that moment, three men appeared at the house in which we were saying, or which we were staying, having been sent to me from Caesarea, which remember again is a beautiful Roman city. It was known as the Roman stronghold, essentially the capital of that area. Verse 12 says, the Spirit told me to go with them without misgivings. Notice that word again. These six brethren also went with me and we entered into the man's house. Peter's going to apply this in this way. Don't dispute about my going. Because immediately... The crowd would have responded as soon as he said the word Caesarea. His hearers would have, would have said, what? Cornelius? A, a Gentile? No way. But Peter has to reiterate, no, he, he said that without any of those misgivings. Don't dispute it. Go do it. Even though you may feel odd about it, don't contend. Don't argue. Don't discriminate. Go. Verse 13. And he reported to us how he had seen the angel standing in a house and saying, Send to Joppa and have Simon, who is also called Peter, brought here. So now they're hearing that revelation is not just given to Peter, it's also given to Cornelius. There's still divine revelation, but there's the added element of divine providence here. God lines up things with what his word says. Now, we got to be really careful here, because I don't know about you, but there are times in which we confuse God's providence with God's word, and that's not the case. Please don't ever confuse what God does and his providence and his provision with what his word says. Yet, I know you've experienced this. God will so often, in his providing, for us and his providence bring things to pass that line up with what he says in his word. 
And, and sometimes, let's be honest, we just can't help to see those providential events as being illustrations of what his word says or applications of what his word says or opportunities to develop what his word says. And this is what happens here. Notice that, that Peter reports that Cornelius said, there's an angel in this house and said to them, send to Joppa, have Simon, who's called Peter, brought here. Then verse 14, and he will speak words to you by which you will be saved, you and all of your household. Notice there, there had to be a preacher that, that came here. They had to bring the household to come. And I want to remind you of this. The household is always still the basic unit of the church. So he brings the household here. They say, you will hear words by which you and your household will be saved. And he does not say, you'll be baptized by water by which you are saved. There would be a baptism of the household. But the priority is the word of God has to come. Which, by the way, that's why, if you ever ask this question, why once a month we bring our young people, our children in here to sit under the preaching of God's word. Because... These are words that are coming by which we pray they'll be saved and drawn to Christ. It's a beautiful lesson in here about the gospel. And so we've got divine providence. We have, uh, uh, we had a divine revelation. And now we've got divine grace in verse 15. And as I began to speak, Peter says, The Holy Spirit fell upon them just as he did upon us at the beginning. In the midst of his preaching, not as the first words come out, but in the course of his speaking, the Spirit fell upon them. And that language there, the Gentile Pentecost, it's, it's fitting, isn't it? Guys, remember, remember, just as the Spirit came upon you, remember Jerusalem, not a few years before this, remember how the Word of God was being preached from my lips, and even though there was that mystery about who Christ was and we were confused, the Spirit fell upon us, and then each in our own language by the supernatural gift of the speaking of the Word of God in a foreign language, we heard and received the Word of God, we saw the wonderful works of God, each in our own tongues, they would have said, yes, we, we remember. How could we, how could we forget Pentecost? It was clearly the most supernatural work we've ever seen. And, and Peter goes, and then remember, I told you in the midst of that day of Pentecost, I preached that sermon where I said, we must be saved from this perverse generations to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. They would say, yes, we remember that. And he would say, the same exact thing happened here. This is why he said the thing that happened that came upon us at the beginning. That word is significant. Pentecost marks the beginning of the New Testament era in full flower. And after the ascension of Christ, they're united. He says they were right there with us. Same thing happened to the Gentiles. I'm a witness, I'm a testimony of that in verse 16. And I remembered the word of the Lord, how he used to say... John baptized with water, but you'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Verse 17. Therefore, if, if God gave to them the same gift as he gave to us also after believing in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? He uses the same phrase here that he did in verse 47 of, of chapter 10. He gives them a question that's unanswerable. 
I love doing that in any argument I've ever had, right? Any debate I've ever had. I love giving a question that's unanswerable. And here's what Peter's unanswerable question is in verse 47. He says, surely no one can refuse the water for these to be baptized who've received the Holy Spirit just as we did. Can he? Who's going to say no to that, right? No, no, they can't. Now, Peter did not... Uh, uh, let's see, he gives one question that's unanswerable. The answer to that question is nobody can. Nobody can refuse this. They've been saved just as we were, but but notice what didn't happen. What hasn't happened to them yet? What What did the Old Testament saints think was the mark of a Christian? So, uh, keeping the law and circumcision. Notice that didn't happen here. God didn't speak from heaven and say, I'm going to send the Spirit, and once you take them in, bring them to the local rabbi and have a surgical procedure performed on their bodies. He didn't do that. He sent the Spirit to the Gentiles, the uncircumcised ones. And then verse 17, there's another unanswerable question here in verse 17. Therefore, if God gave to them the same gift as he gave to us, also after believing the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? This is remarkable. In the same way, when when change comes into the church life, that, that the elders and pastors don't come in and say, we're the elders, this is what we're doing, you better submit to it or you're out. That's a horrible way to lead. That's not Christ-like leadership. What does Peter do as an apostle? He gives them a full, orderly account. He reasons with them in the confidence of Christ that's working through their minds. Jesus spoke from heaven. He confirmed what he spoke in his providence. He demonstrated what he spoke with his grace. Who was I to forbid the change that Gentiles and Jews should receive the same sign? Being marked out as in union with Christ without any surgical procedure needed. So that's a, that's a very careful response there. And then finally, there is a compliant rejoicing. Listen, I didn't say they fully understood it. But they accepted it. Look at verse 18, the last verse of our text here. When they heard this, they quieted down and glorified God, saying, Well then, God has granted to the Gentiles also the repentance that leads to life. Now listen, I don't think that they were quieted down because... They got shut up and they didn't know what to say or they're coming out with an argument to counter. I think essentially they were, they were probably just stunned. And they were certainly convicted, right? What more do you say? Especially when this is a rhetorical question. They can't answer this. What are they going to say? We're going to stand in God's way. No. They were stumped. They complied and they glorified God. It was compliant rejoicing. These were the circumcised, recognizing that the uncircumcised, who were still, by the way, uncircumcised, were on the same footing as they were. God granted them the repentance that leads to life, which is the mark of a true religion. If you don't repent of your sins, you don't have life. We're going to get to that in a bit. But the the mark of the whole Christian life, as, as Luther said, is always repentance. Physical circumcision recognized true circumcision. If you actually look at Acts 15, 11, Peter puts it in a different way there. He says, but we believe, speaking to the Gentiles, that we are saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus in the same way as they also are. In Jerusalem, once again, they became silent. 
So at this point, the, the Jews swallowed their pride of all these outward things and seized an inward reality. Though they're uncircumcised in the flesh, they're circumcised in heart, and that's what's important. They're repentant unto life. We are brothers and sisters in, in, in Christ. Now, does that mean that there were no problems that would come with these changes? Actually, actually, in fact, that's kind of what happens. If you, we're going to get to that in Acts chapter 15 because what started with a little bit of a, a murmur about, okay, this is real, let's sit in with the realities of this, it stirred up a little bit until it became a problem. And they have to have, in Acts 15, a Jerusalem council to come and talk to them about whether or not Gentiles who receive in the faith need to be circumcised and follow the works of the law in order to be saved. So, so no, and not only that, but you remember what happened to Peter himself? Think about this. This is amazing. Peter at one point balked at eating with Gentiles. This one who had learned his lesson, he refused to eat with Gentiles. You know why? He was afraid of the Jews. He was intimidated by them. Think about this. Peter had to be withstood to his face by Paul, who, if anything, had been a circumcised of the circumcised. The whole book of Galatians, the heresy that they're dealing with, affected Asia Minor, was over this. Now we think Gentiles really do need to be circumcised if they're male. Paul had to correct that with the book and say, no, to do that is to teach another gospel. So were there no problems? No, there were all kinds of problems that came. That's basically what's going on here. But here's what we learn from this. Here's our lessons from the day, our lessons to be learned. The first is that, folks, the, the message of the Christian faith is Christ and not culture. We've got to get that down. I know we've talked about that for a couple weeks now, but we really do. It is first culture that we, it isn't first culture that we present. Because culture, you know what culture does? Culture makes us feel very at peace with ourselves. I don't know about you, but I, I'm most naturally comfortable and peaceful, I'll admit it, with Southern Baptist culture. But church family, you can so insulate yourself with your culture that you are at peace with those you are around and inwardly at war with God. What God does is he will give you peace with himself and then he'll make you struggle with yourself. He'll make you struggle with your prejudices, your discrimination. He'll make you struggle with your own spastic responses with dealing with others who are culturally different than you. But it's a blessed struggle. It's a healthy struggle. Because Jesus has this design of bringing people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. Not culture, but gospel. Don't deal with the peripheral issues first. The clothes, the music, the speech patterns. But heart issues. What does God's word say? Not what is your comfort level. Listen, friends, as a pastor, I've had to wrestle with this myself. Because I find it easier to deal with my own kind and certain people are out of my comfort level. I'll be honest. But if a person has a heart for Christ, 
It doesn't make a difference what they wear, what they sound like. It's a circumcised heart that brings kinship, fellowship, family. And, and I don't want to be trite here, but can you imagine the comfort level of Jesus coming out of heaven to deal with Pharisees and prostitutes? But he did it. And that's what the church does. Step out of our comfort zones as Christ did and unite ourselves with people from other cultures and walks our life. And you will be at peace with God even if you struggle and wrestle with yourself. Struggle's okay, friends. Struggle is healthy. In fact, if you just aren't struggling with sin in any shape, way, or form, I'm not sure you're a Christian because it's what we do. We fight, we struggle, we wrestle sin every day. And part of that stepping outside of your comfort zone. Secondly, we've talked about this. Don't major on the minors. Major on the major, not on minors. Don't major on moral reformation or cultural conformity. Morals, morality, and cultures, they change sometimes. And, and thank God they do. But deal first with repentance. Those are the two things and areas you're going to have to deal with. First is, is are they repentant? If something is sinful, regardless of what they're wearing, do they repent of sin? That's, that's a question you need to answer. Do you repent of sin? Evidence you're a Christian. When's the last time you repented of sin, by the way? Boy, let me tell you, I, it's ugly. Nobody, nobody enjoys it, I don't think, right? Nobody's like, yeah, man, I got to confess how terrible I was today. And, and, uh, and I'm praying God will help me and change me. And I'll confess it and I've repented and I'm walking in faith now. Nobody likes that. But you know what I can always guarantee you about repentance in my life? I'm never more assured that I belong to God than when I've just repented. When, I, when I'm resting in his done and forgiving work on the cross, and I know I'm resting in that, I'm reminded, by the way, that my salvation is not based upon what I do, but on what he's done. And I'm able to live so much at peace when I'm admitting that I'm sinful and I'm asking God to change my heart. I, I'm just telling you that right now. So, are you repentant? Have you repented? That's the a, that's a first question I think that's really important. Repentance of sin, and secondly, humility before God. A mark of a Christian before all else is humility before God. Are you humble before God? People often say this, well, listen, I am what I am. Nobody's going to tell me any different. You want to know if you're humble before God? It's interesting, by the way, how humility before God changes what we wear, how we speak. It may not exactly change in the way you and I do it, but it does. And this is what we're after, folks. Changed in Christ. A sinner coming before Jesus. Are you in your own comfort zone with others, thinking that that's equal to Jesus? Or do you say, Lord, I may really have to struggle and wrestle with how to be holy in a filthy world, but I'm coming to you. And you recognize you're one with everybody else who does it, regardless of what kind of music they listen to. Is that what you see in others and yourself? Friends, these are the real issues of the Christian church. Because it's then when the church realizes its real identity. It's not a natural gathering of similar groups. That's not the church. Conservative white suburbanites, a gathering of Southern Baptist types. What's the church? 
It's a supernatural gathering. God takes people who might otherwise wouldn't even think of dealing with one another and he supernaturally brings them together as a family in him. No less than how he supernaturally brought Peter to Cornelius' home. He gathers them together, not first as comfortable folks in their comfort zones, but as sinners first. Do you know yourself a sinner? What brings us together? We're sinners saved by grace. God's grace reached down to me with my wardrobe, with my music, with my customs, with my language, with my background, regardless of what these peripheral things are. Sin entered into all of those, but he reached into me as a sinner and he drew me to Christ. And in doing so, God says, who my blessing is going to be Jew and Gentile and all nations, therefore brings me together into his church. What's the church? The church, friends, it's not natural gatherings of similar groups. That's, that's a country club you're after. It's a supernatural gathering of rich and poor, young and old, Jew and Greek, and whatever one of the nationalities you want to put in it. Supernatural gathering of sinners saved by grace. So we're going to be this type of church is the question. Are we going to step outside our comfort zones once in a while? Are we ever really going to trust him with that? And are we going to be marked by repentance and humility? I pray that we will. Any questions, comments, testimonies, rebukes, whatever you want, throw them up at me. Questions? Sure, go ahead. Mm-hmm. It was the year anniversary of her, and it was out of my comfort zone to do so. But I knew that I needed to go wherever God might be. Yeah. And change it up a little bit. So, comfort zone is it's easy to get into. And I think it's, it's what the world sees us doing. Yeah. Committing with our own kind, our own people, our own sure. And I think it's important to be able to step out of that and talk to real folks. Sure. Yeah, and you know, I think that's one of the ways when we talk about when we talk about God's providence aligning with God's word, I think there's an opportunity for that. And that's something I was convicted with this week is, you know, I often think about God, just would you give us another church we can encourage? Or uh, I'm, I'm a really bad like communication, like missionaries all the time will ask me, hey, give me somebody in your network that I can talk to you about coming and talking about missions. And I'm like, I, I'll give you my brother's number. Um, and I think that's about it. Uh, so um, I've been asking for God to help us, you know, come alongside other churches and, and get that community back. And I always thought about how, how that's interesting that happens. We pray God for something like that. Um, oftentimes, his providence allows that. And I thought of, I thought of, um, I thought of the hurricane. I thought of Irma and how churches all around Callahan, it didn't matter what church you were belonging to, you were helping and ministering. I thought of Mark Wynn and Gail's house where we came together with different members of different churches, people who loved them and gathered around the church family and worked together. How God through his providence even answers such things that we desire in the word. And it's, it's a humbling thing. So be careful uh, what you pray for that. But he's faithful to allow you even through Things we would consider difficult providence. Is that the way Richard put it, that Sunday night sermon? Uh, tough providences that he gives uh, to work together as a church. Yeah. Amen. Anything else? Brock? We also have to be very careful. Um, 
Yeah, you know, it, it's funny. Those are two things that I cut out of my sermon. So I'm glad that you guys mentioned them because this is never more dangerous than it, when, when new Christians. New Christians, more than anyone, need to be embraced in whatever culture they're in. And remember, your job as a Christian isn't to point them to conservatism. It's not to, to point them even to Southern Baptists. It's, it's to point them to Jesus. That's your job as a family member in Christ. And though there's healthy doctrine in Southern Baptists, and we, we affirm that, that's, that's important. Our job, first and foremost, is to encourage believers to trust in Christ. And you won't discourage a new believer to trust in Christ uh, less than when you try and change some things that are minor. Sure. Yeah. Right. It's the opposite of John thirteen thirty five. Right. By this, all men will know that you're disciples. How? Your love want for one another. That's the opposite effect. If they look and see that Christianity is, is you and I nitpicking each other on minor things that aren't major things, they don't see love. Right. And, and why, I mean, there's, there's a place and, and time for conversations to happen. I, I think the church culture is a little bit too much majoring on the minor in a lot of ways. Absolutely. Any other questions, comments? All right, good friends. You know I'm always down here. If you have any, I enjoy talking to you about Scripture always. Thankful for your attention tonight and pray that God's working through this study in the book of Acts. Let's pray and you'll be dismissed. Father, we pray, Lord, that you'd help us. Um, Father, just think upon the gospel, to dwell upon the gospel. Lord, as we consider the... Um, Lord, the cultural change that you took part in from stepping out of the glories of the riches of heaven to being born in a manger, raised as a carpenter's son for 30 years and then dining with Pharisees and dining with prostitutes and Lord, encouraging and loving believers that are made in the image of God and unbelievers who were made in the image of God. Father, we, we consider that and Lord, in light of that, all of our cultural differences seem puny. Uh, and so, Father, would you convict us of those things? And would you, would you help us? And, Lord, just, just remind us that there's grace uh, in receiving new things and understanding changes in the church. Um, Lord, that, uh, that if, if we repent and we walk in humility, that you are faithful to cleanse that in us, to use it for our, our good and your glory. And, Lord, may we um, shine brightly for Callahan, for Christ's sake, as a church who is welcoming of all cultures, um, and Lord, who are focused solely, first and foremost, on the gospel of Christ. Would you ignite that in us and begin to teach us and show us your way, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.